This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 522 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Alistair McCartney. Now, Alistair is a veteran of the British Army and is also one of the most renowned and world record-holding base jumpers on the planet. So we discuss a host of topics, from British boarding schools and Hong Kong all the way through to base jumping, overcoming fear, and the importance of routines. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Alistair McCartney. Enjoy. Alistair, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. 
thanks, thanks very much for having me. I've heard amazing, amazing things about this podcast, so I feel very, very honoured indeed for being invited on on here with you. Well, we've got a mutual friend, Ryan Parrott, so we'll definitely be talking, touching on on sowing some seeds on on what's coming in the future, and we'll get to how you guys met. But uh, I appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Okay, so the first thing I love to ask people: Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Well, I'm on Whidbey Island, which is an island just off Seattle in Washington State. Um, but you could probably tell by my accent that I'm not originally from here. No. So let's let's start with that then. I love to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. So I was born in Hong Kong. Um, so my uh, parents, uh, both of them were in the British Army. Uh, and they were serving over there in Hong Kong. And uh, I've got one sister. Uh, my sister and I were both born in Hong Kong, although we're, we're British. Uh, and then um, being from a military family, we traveled around a bunch, lived uh, up to about the point where I was about 18. Uh, we lived in Hong Kong multiple times. And I was actually able to say that I had spent more time living in Hong Kong than I had anywhere else in the world. But we um, lived in various places, but mostly Hong Kong, Germany and UK. Uh, and we we traveled quite a lot and it was pretty exciting and to me that was normal there was one point where I was about six or seven and it was winter and I said to my parents where are we going this Christmas and they said what do you what do you mean and I said well everybody moves house at Christmas uh, where are we moving house to and I had I thought that everybody in the world um, and it just so happened that we must have had one or two times where it was around, you know, winter period where we moved. And I thought everybody moved at, at Christmas time. That was something, something that we, that we did. So we we travelled around a bunch, and uh, it it was great. Uh, and I have I have a big um, military background in 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 my family. Uh, my um, two grandparents on one side and one grandparent on the other side both served in the Second World War. Uh, uh, and and got got injured or uh, in it as well. Um, I had an uncle in the navy, two cousins in the army, um, so big big military background. So I ended up um, following them and spent t- twenty years in the army myself. Okay, well, a couple of things I want to pull from that. Firstly, when people have been kind of gypsies, a lot of times military families, um, it's always interesting now as an adult, especially with the lens that you have. What is your perspective of the pros of that kind of upbringing? And then what are some of the cons that you identified? Uh, uh, yeah, really interesting. I mean, it, it, it was great and I wouldn't have it any other way. I went to boarding school as a result. And I think uh, here in the US, people associate boarding school with people who haven't really, you know, they've been problem children. But for uh, I, I think it's it's less so from the military environment, and particularly the British military environment. There was so much travel, there was so much disruption in, in schooling that it was a way to give uh, um, children then uh, um, the education that they needed without, uh, you know, I, I must have, it's probably about eight when I went to boarding school, but I must have been to so many different schools and missed certain things where one school in one country does it a certain way. They do, then that topic is done on in, in a different year. So you ended up missing that whole topic, but do, but do it twice in, in a different school. Um, but you know, there's, there are, there are definitely aspects, you know, I, I, I think as a result of going to, to boarding school there, my sister did as well. I'm not as close to my sister because I didn't really see her on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I think the, the family piece there isn't, isn't as close as it would, it would otherwise be. And, fa- and family really is so, so important. Um, 
I think as well to go with that, I'm a, I'm a more closed person, less uh, emotionally out there. Uh, I don't share my feelings as much because, you know, if I did have a problem, you know, I didn't have that those parents, you know, there on a day to day basis to, 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 to turn to and share those. So, you know, I, I don't have that. And I also don't have this, you know, uh, I'm not really that close with the people that I went to school with um, anymore. And I, I don't have this hometown to go back to. Um, to to go back and see my friends that I grew up with, um, but I do have these amazing traveling experiences from all over the world that you know we really didn't have. So there's there's no right or wrong answer. It's just a different different part, really. Yeah, it's well, been interesting the last like two or three years. Both my parents went to boarding school for pretty much their entire childhood, and we're talking about another generation back than you, but. I've learned that there was actually abuse, there was cruelty, there was all kinds of things. Um, so, you know, again, tarring you know, the, the whole system with, with the brush is the wrong way of doing it. But I had no idea kind of, you know, how cruel some of those boarding schools could actually be. I don't know if you ever had a glimpse of that in your experience. I think they can be. And the, the, there was the, the odd thing, but I, I didn't really experience any, any of that. There certainly wasn't any sort of um, sexual abuse or any anything like that was there a bullying aspect there was it probably a bit hit, hit here and there but you know there are in just regular schools as well so um, I, I don't think we really experienced too too much of that uh, I, I think um, perhaps that was in some other schools perhaps that was for people that are a bit older than me um, but it, it wasn't really something that I encountered. Yeah, I'm assuming their generation was probably the tail end of the Victorian mentality. It was right after World War Two, so you know I'm sure some of these these people that were in charge probably flew under the radar. You know, they shouldn't have, but and and these days probably would have been behind behind bars. But you know, we for, we forget that that generation. You know, that that's one one area that we, if we're looking into maybe how people are if they're struggling with you know any sort of mental health issues that maybe if they went to boarding school back in the you know, forties, fifties, sixties, then you know that's another <laughs> another layer of the onion to unwrap. Totally, totally, I agree. All right. Well then with Hong Kong as well, were you there pre and post when the British withdrew from from there? No. Um left a few years before um Hong so Hong Kong went back to the Chinese in ninety seven and I think it was about uh, about ninety three that that we left. I have been back since uh um but uh, um not not for not for much not uh, like passing through for a day or so uh, um I would lo love to spend more time there but no my my experience is when the you know it 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 was a a british area um under well, not under british control but while we were there and it, you know it wasn't um chinese in the in the way that it that it that it is now have you heard any any ways that it's changed though because obviously you know you spent your younger years there um you know have you heard any pros and or cons of that you know withdrawal and handing it back to the chinese um I, I actually I, I I haven't heard too much. I, I know there's been a lot of investment in there. There was an, an island, Stonecutters Island, that I spent a bit of time with and did a, a, a project on when I when I was at, at school and it was very much an island. And now it's no longer an island. There's a there's a bridge to it and and it's very, very different to what it what it what it was. The airport has moved. There's a whole new airport that was reclaimed from the sea. Um, you know, so there's there's been big 
big infrastructure changes going go, going on. But uh, I, I have to admit, I haven't followed it too much. One one area that I have followed a bit more is I lived in Germany um, when there was East and West, and Berlin specifically, which. Um, Berlin was, for um, those that don't follow the geography, Berlin was um, a, a lone city owned by the West, but far inside the East. Um, and we we were, we were there prior to the wall going down, and we left a month before the Berlin Wall came down. Um, and so that was very, very interesting in how that was there. And I was fortunate to go into the East a number of times and uh, see the the massive difference between the West and the East, the lack of infrastructure investment, the uh, it was just grey. I'll say it was very grey. The colour wasn't there. Um, people couldn't afford to do too much. Uh, it was it was it was this very very different different place. And I have been back and and seen it, and you wouldn't know um, that these were two of the same places at all now. Uh, just uh, that is somewhere that has massively, massively changed um, from how how it was then and when the wall came down, Germany went from west and east. Suddenly, you know, maps around the world had to be redone uh, um, as as these as it, these countries merged and and changed, and they were two very, very different places. And and how they have ha- have come together, that's a massive change. Yeah, well, we're going to get to Afghanistan a little bit later. And it's interesting because, you know, obviously Berlin was divided because of war. Even, you know, the the British being in Hong Kong was colonialization. So, you know, politics was behind all those things. So it'll be interesting to kind of get your lens as we get to that. Um, with, listen, with listening to you on um, one of the podcasts I listened to, it seemed like you had this instilled in you, at least, at least now, this envision of being able to dream up anything and, and reverse engineer how you can make that possible and obviously you've done some incredible things yourself as a as an extreme athlete when you look back at your childhood especially if you were a boarding school kid did was that something ingrained into you by your parents or did it grow out of maybe some of the solitude of being in boarding school maybe the the there's an aspect of both. I'm, my parents very much encouraged me to do what I wanted to do, to um, not have to necessarily follow them or do what I thought that they would want me to do or that 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 I could do whatever I wanted. And um, as I think probably by the, you know, having perhaps a bit more spare time on your hands, the I wouldn't call it solitude of boarding school, but I but there was you definitely have perhaps a bit more time than you would otherwise have if you weren't at boarding school um, and spare time in hands. And I, I, I probably was a a daydreamer um, as a result uh, um, of that. So like, like to dream, find different interesting things to do. And, and I think I always wanted to do something a bit different to challenge myself, to, to push things. But I wouldn't say equally at school I was someone that necessarily excelled. Um, in in sport, I wasn't bad at sport, um, you know, but uh, but I wasn't the captain of a team or you know the 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 best player, the 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 first one to be picked or you know any anything like that either. And 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 I think that's important that um, you know that you get a, a lot of people who who were in school who think perhaps that they're 
not going to be the best that they wouldn't be the ones that set the world on fire or anything like like that but you know often it's a, it's the, the the people who are just sat back there that that later on in life go on to achieve great things as well and and great can be a whole range of things depending on that individual and what it is that they want or they they need in 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 life as well but i think far too often particularly when you're in that moment at school and you look around at these other people and you look up to them and and and, and think they'll be the ones that do these absolutely amazing things and you get these other people who maybe you haven't noticed so much but actually they go on and they have a real real impact with what it is they they do later on in life yeah that reminds me of a comment one of my friends made i went to school with and we did an interview years and years later he was in the british army too still is oh, excuse me the raf um doing the seer training and some of those things and uh he said to me you were the last person I would expect to have come on to you know to go on to be a firefighter. So I know exactly what you mean. I was the kind of skinny, awkward kid with a kind of blonde afro and buck teeth, and <laughs> not that that you know a firefighter looks a certain way. But I, what you're yeah. describing is exactly me when I was in school. Yeah, and it, you know, I think I, I think there's so much to it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some of the people that are, you know, the the the, the captain of the sports teams or. Uh, and you know whoever it is the top people as well that they, they can and do go on to great things as well but uh, some of them do some of them don't uh um but it, it can be a range and i think people can and, and i think particularly in those years they're, they're formative years but some of us i think i'm somebody who was a bit of a late starter uh um and and i think you can have quite a few of those that people can judge those people on wh- where they are say at you know 16 17 18 19 but you know m- maybe it's not till they're 24 25 or wherever it is that things can start to come out or later or, or earlier and but some people they you know the, the, it can be seen in them earlier but you know ev- everyone works in different ways and sometimes people are just figuring out where they fit into to life and where they want life to go for them Absolutely. Now, with the school age, what were you dreaming of becoming career-wise at that point? Uh, I, I was, I pretty much was always dreaming of um, being, um, basically following in in my father's footsteps. My dream actually was to go and join the army and do exactly the same jobs that, that he had done. Now that that changed a bit, I decided not to follow and do exactly the same jobs, but I did, uh, you know, I did largely follow in in his footsteps. Okay, so walk me through that then. From from graduating school, what was that journey into the military like for you? Well, for me, it was it was very simple. I knew pretty early on, and so in UK, um, you you do a set of GCSEs and then A level exams. And so for your last two years in school, you're studying for your A level exams. And I left the school I was in, and I went to a military school for the last two years, where I did my a-levels um, and that military school was a natural transition from there to officer training in the army so um, I took a, I took a few months off and then I went straight into officer training uh, in in the army did that for a year and that that was me then as an officer in the army for roughly the next 20 years so you had quite a unique role, um, one that I think, you know, the unsung heroes of <laughs> of many of the conflicts because we, you know, we look at the people on the battlefield with all their gear already deployed forward of them and, you know, everything uh, supply that they need. So tell me about the role that you played and, and you know, how that factors into the overall success of, of the men and women that were actually in the front lines. Well, 
I joined the Boyle Logistic Corps. And so uh, essentially we did the logistics, but uh, I never kind of felt I fitted in exactly there. I'm not sure quite exactly where I should have fitted in, uh, but I always worked sort of on the fringes of it. And so I did uh, a whole range of different jobs from tank transporting uh, through to uh, I ran the unit that moved all the secret and top secret information around the world, which sounds far more exciting and sexier than um, than it really is. It's, it sounds like it can be a sort of James Bondy type type thing, but actually it's much more about um, um, logistics, booking booking flights, putting people on on flights, sitting in vans, driving around the country, um, that sort of thing. Um, I did a lot of airdrop. So we would do, uh, and not just airdrop, but do the, the testing and evaluation for airdrop if uh, something new came into service. So we would throw, you know, um, vehicles out of aircraft or rations and water out of, out of, out of aircraft. Um, or we, we would do the test and evaluation if a new vehicle came into service in the military, we would work out how to throw it out of the aircraft so that, you know, ideally it landed right so that people could use it when it got there. Um, and uh, I also uh, ran the instructor training for instructors to fast rope and abseil out of out of helicopters. Uh, I learned Pashto, um, one of the Afghanistan languages, for 15 months, and that was probably one of the hardest jobs that I that I had because languages didn't really come naturally to me. And you had to take um, what was called a modern language aptitude test just to be eligible to go on the course. They they assessed whether you had an aptitude to learn languages and and um, Pashto, which has, you know, it, uh, um, an Arabic type script, which is written backwards and all that sort of thing. It's a complicated language to learn. Um, so I kind of reverse engineered how the test went. Um, and cheating is the wrong word, but I kind of worked out how the test went and what they were looking for and how to um, score highly on the test. Um, but so that enabled me to get my place to learn Pashto. But of course, once you're then on the course and you're learning how to do it and you're surrounded by people who are naturally good at languages and I'm not, it then became a very difficult thing. So I, I learned that and then I spent seven months in Afghanistan, in Lashkar, which is the capital of Helmand, which is in, in the south, uh, and spent time there uh, working working with people in Afghanistan and you know being somebody who could speak to them and speak their, their language my job was very much about forming relationships with them as well um, which was really interesting there were some amazing amazing lovely people that I that I met there well I'll ask you a question then that I ask every veteran that's been you know deployed to the to the front line and it's a two-part question but I think it's very unique and I'll preface it the same way I always do Maybe not so much in the UK, but certainly here in the US, we get a very polarized perspective of war, either a very, very anti-war, they're all baby killers, or very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out. And in the middle are very, very young men and women that we send out, you know, hopefully for you know, a core of humanity. Uh, obviously, there's some politics aside as well, but those men and women find themselves on the ground, you know, seeing through their own eyes. So firstly, were there any... Um, moments where you saw some some sort of atrocity or some sort of you know terrorism that justified your place there and, and what I mean by that is you know I think what's not reported to us 
very well is that usually that's towards the people of that country by Taliban, Al-Qaeda, whoever. So was it, were there any kind of aha moments for you when you were over there? There were some aha moments, but in a different way. I mean, I was, I was very fortunate. Uh, um, and, and this shows that. So I was there in 2011. Um, and I was, I was very, very fortunate. And I also believe that, um, and for lots of people, this wouldn't be their ideal of going on operations. They want to get in there, take the fight to the enemy, you know, all of this, this kind of thing. I was very fortunate that I never fired my weapon once. Um, and so I was fortunate that I wasn't in a position where I needed to. It wasn't really my role. I was part of a reconstruction team. Um, but, but, you know, I, I was, uh, I, I wasn't expo- exposed to any IEDs directly going off, but I heard them. I was close enough to hear them. Um, uh, and I would go to services where people had died. Um, but, uh, um, you know, which is, which was terribly, terribly tragic. Uh, um, and particularly when you're there in the country and you're at a service for somebody who, who ha- has died, it's, it's you know when we're back back here on our home soil and we hear about it you know we just you know we 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 think about it and we hear it when we're when we're there on operations in a in a a country it it really comes closer to you then as well um but so i was there and i experienced that um but uh um some of the some of the indications that i saw of of changes were different changes that people wouldn't normally look at. So in Lashkigar, there's a river that runs through Lashkigar, and when we uh, were able to um, to see that um, people were actually taking their cars down to the river to wash their cars, this to me, and, and this is something that you drive past and you wouldn't pay too much attention to and you wouldn't really understand, but this to me was progress because if the local residents are interested in keeping their car clean they 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 have less expectations that it's going to get blown up um, and they didn't when I first got there they weren't going down to wash their cars and later on during my time there they were going to wash their cars uh, and it's these subtle indicators that people don't think about in that same way that actually show that in actual fact uh, um, progress is happening. It is getting safer. They, 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 they have that feeling that you know their car isn't going to get blown up like it perhaps might once otherwise have a, have a, have happened. So there were those subtle bits that 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 I think, particularly when you know my job is more focused on a reconstruction point of view that you're looking at in different ways that other people would look at. Yeah, well, it's so interesting to hear all these different perspectives. I think it's so important because now we're creating a tapestry of all these different, you know, lenses. So conversely, the second half of that question, um, it's very easy to paint the Afghanis or the Iraqis as the bad guy. And obviously, there's a country full of families just trying to get, you know, go about their business. Meanwhile, all these conflicts are going on. So what about moments of humanity and compassion and kindness when you were there? Yeah, I mean, to me, to, to me that was that was key. And I very, very quickly learned that there were some amazing people there, um, particularly because I could speak the language, I could go out and, and um, you know, I could 
see them. And, and of course, there were people there that didn't want us there. And there were people there that, that did. And there were people there that thought maybe we could just give them something and they wanted to be your friends too. And you had to navigate all, all, all of that. But they're very much a, you know, um, take, take time to do things, take time to get to know people, take time to trust people. Uh, and I think we got it very badly wrong in the fact that for me, I was there for, for seven months and I started to understand partway through time that I was there that really, I would spend my whole time there forming a relationship and where I could really have an impact would be if I was there for at least double the amount of time. Um, because I, I, you know, I'd form that relationship. I get to a stage where I can actually meaningfully do something with that relationship and I leave and then somebody else comes in and does the same again. So I volunteered to extend and be there for longer. But of course the powers that be didn't see that they'd already lined up the person to come in my place. Um, and that wouldn't happen. Um, but, you know, we, we got that wrong and I suggested multiple ways to do it. Perhaps I, I go away for, for six months, they have their tour, and then I come back um, and and or things like that. So the relationship's still there. But, you know, uh, that was too too complicated. It wasn't in the their their plan of how stuff worked. And, you know, who who was I to suggest um, all of all of this stuff? So um, but but meaningful stuff you know we uh, i've got a picture where we went to an orphanage and um someone from the state department so i worked in a nato reconstruction team so there are people from all different um walks of life and all the different nato countries that contributed um so someone from the u.s state department had been able to get books for them uh, and we went to an orphanage and took them books uh, and we would run around and we'd play soccer with them um, I remember going to Sangin, uh, which was a particularly um, um, a more volatile area. Um, but I was there uh, with a couple of the Afghans that I, that, that I knew. Uh, you know, I remember stripping down to my underpants and diving in the in to swim with them and stuff like that, and and just becoming friendly with with them. We would go off into a cornfield. They would they would pick some corn from the field. They would they would make a little fire, throw the corn in, and and just just eat it there and just sit down and and eat it all. Um, and it was just this, these these great bonding experiences where they sort of invited me along to just be part of them and to be with them and i think for me being able to speak the the language really broke that um that you know in, in enabling me to get to get into to their little clique if you will and to just have conversations with them and i remember there was one day where we were in our, our base and someone from the reconstruction team had an impromptu meeting with one of the the elders from a district that that, that he worked with and there were a number of um, interpreters that they would normally use. Um, but there was one day a week, and I forget what day it was, the interpreters had their day off. And it happened to be then, so he was, this guy was running around, and he found me, he said, I need a big favor, can you come and help? This, this, this elder has come in, we've got some imp important business, can you help? And I said, um, absolutely, of course. Uh, and so I, I, and I, interpreted uh as best i could of course i wasn't at the natural language level but uh but i did and um at the end of it we we walked the interpreter uh, sorry we walked the elder down to the front gate and his final thing to me was he said 
the biggest gift of all my time working working with you guys was to meet you and the fact that you have learned our language. I haven't met anybody else who have learned our language and the fact that you would do this and could do that, that's the biggest gift for, for, for us. And he, he was just absolutely, uh, you know, he just couldn't get around the fact that somebody, you know, from, from NATO had spent that time to learn learn to speak their their language, which of course so many more of us really should have done uh, in in some way. We were in their country, um, uh, and 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 I think we as English speakers, particularly because English is a language that is well known around the world, where wherever you are, we get away with being able to speak our our language wherever we are. But whereas if you're someone from a country that has a language that isn't well known. Maybe it's uh, you're from Spain or France or or Portugal or Germany or you're Norwegian or you know one of one of these countries. They all, most of them, can speak English to an extent because you need that somewhere else. They 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 learn a second language much more normally than than the English speaking world does. Yeah, no, I I agree. When I I mean you probably the same when when I was in school um, from. I want to say it was probably, God, like six or eight. We had to learn French all the way through. And then I think I had it on German in, in high school as well. But yeah, well, I lived in Japan for just over a year. And even though I, again, you talk about getting away with it, I lived in a giant apartment complex with half Americans, half Australians, and then a couple of us uh, European mutts thrown in there. Um, but, you know, that was just it. I mean, I didn't learn as much as if I'd been thrown in and there were no you know, English speakers around, but, you know, firstly, I, I enjoyed learning languages, but it, it's a, it's a sign of respect. Even if you're not very good at it, the fact that you're trying it, the fact that you've, you know, made an attempt, I think speaks volumes. And I think, you know, whether it's America or England, we can be a little arrogant expecting other people to speak our language and not taking a step back. And I've had this, I've had the reverse. I worked in Hialeah outside Miami. And I've had Spanish speakers all upset because I didn't speak Spanish. It's like, well, I speak other languages. Just because I don't speak yours doesn't mean that I don't know languages. But yeah, I think there's there's definitely a kind of, you know, unspoken message if you take the time to learn a culture and learn a language. Yeah, and 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 the culture and the language are two different bits. And on my 50 months course where I learned to speak the, their their language, culture was massively missed. Uh, and in fact, the course was so badly. Uh, I mean, I spent half my spare time speaking to them about how they needed to rework the, the, the course because it was so badly done. For instance, we would do a role play situation where, where, where um, they, would, they would have naval terms. Submarine was one of the terms that we had to learn in, in, in their language, except Pashtu doesn't have a word for, for, for that because they're a landlocked country. They don't have a submarine and, they, and the word was actually made up um for uh, for us to do it that's how uh, how badly the course is put together but the, but the culture was was so important it's all well and good teaching us to 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 speak the language but if you don't understand all the cultural aspects that, that go with it you're you're shooting yourself in the foot you, you know and and so that bit was was massively omitted and they would teach us for example shakespeare's english when actually um you know we uh you know a, a shakespeare version for for, for there when, when we were going to you know a core uh, um part that um you know is is more they has a much stronger 
accent and use of of vocabulary and uh it, it, they just taught us completely the wrong type and suddenly we get there and they're like they said why are you talking like it great you can talk about language but why are you talking like that like this isn't how you speak well no you need to you know you're you're talking like really strange um but you know so we you know we we as the british teaching this had got that pretty pretty wrong but you know you then test and adjust and fix it all but uh yeah culture culture is is, is so important as, as part of it absolutely i mean you know being british there's things if you know people do from other countries that come over here and you know we perceive it as very rude but i never forget doing uh, kickboxing in osaka when i lived there and you know we took it in turns to count as we punched or kicked or whatever we were doing and i'll never forget there was one of the numbers it was i think it was number seven and there's two when you look at the the book there's two ways of saying it so i went with the original way and everyone in the japanese burst into laughter almost like fell on the floor and i was like <laughs> and again it's that dialect it's that you know colloquialism where you don't say that word so to them it was hilarious and that's just one little word imagine that word being wrong um leading to maybe a life or death situation that's a terrifying thing yeah yeah absolutely and it's funny and if you have some small little things and 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 there were some small things and i i forget the examples now but i would i would use them and play on them and it would be a you know a bit of a joke as well if it's a if it's a different cultural thing but you can make you can make fun out of it um that's good but one of the things that that the past students went into a lot was um poetry and so I would um, spend a bit of time, and then I had a, uh, uh, I had an interpreter that I worked with as well. And him and I, we would we would try and write Pashto, uh, uh, um, you know, little lyrics and lines, and I would tell it to them. But they loved it that 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 I would do this because they were into it. And of course, you know, I'm sure what I came up with was really bad. Um, but you know, I I would say a verse, and you know, in between each verse, they would cheer and clap and things. And 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 I think it was more not because what I did was that good or, or, or bad is just that I cared and and I was trying to embrace you know what they were doing and and, and into um, we would sometimes we would have meetings with uh, with people and they would they would come to to our camp and they would come come into the gate and uh, I, I would and you could have somebody go and meet them at the gate and escort them and bring them into you but I was always always make sure that I was the one I would go and meet them I would walk them out I would take them back out and other people if they were meeting with other people and, and they wanted to do it I said I'll go and do that I'll go and get them I'll bring them to you then I would form that relationship with those people I didn't know them or if they were my friends but they were meeting with with somebody else uh, I was still able to just deepen my relationship with them all for the sake of a few minutes to take them to the gate or to take them back back there and I, it's just these small little things just made a difference and made these people know that I cared yeah well it's it's, a, it's such an interesting perspective because again I've, I've had all these people on the show um, obviously Afghanistan has come up this last week and I've sought out a couple of kind of groups to really get again boots on the ground perspective um one of them was actually an afghani um actor so he, he's he's an american citizen he works in hollywood he was in 12 strong american sniper all kinds of uh um films but he actually left his acting career for a few years to attach to the u.s marines to serve as a cultural um ambassador and a, and a linguist to try and bridge that gap 
Um, so he has a very unique perspective of the last 20 years through the Afghani eyes, which we don't really hear that much about. You know, some of the veterans have their own perspective. Um, so I want to fast forward 10 years just before we get to your skydiving journey. Um, you were just involved in, you know, or you are involved in assisting some of the evacuations. So talk to me firstly about, about what you were doing. And secondly, one of the things that I hear a lot from a lot of the veterans is that we've broken trust as nation or nations now with some of these places that we went into and, and made promises and created relationships. So, so, you know, what, you were there in 2011. What brought you back to this particular movement? And, and obviously, you've got a, a, a very applicable skill set. But kind of walk me through this last week or so through your eyes. Well, you know, I think uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a, a lot of one, my job, but two, morally, the right thing to do when I was there was, was to form relationships with people, and it's about understanding them, what they what they were were doing, supporting them, and of course, you know, from a a cultural background if you don't understand what they need what they want then we can't enable them to to get that um so you know I, that was a lot of what i did so I, I formed relationships with people um and i have um a number of those relationships still to this day uh and i've stayed in touch with a lot of those people and when everything was going wrong and regime change was apparent and happening in afghanistan a couple of them reached out to me and said I'm stuck. I need to get out. Can you help? And at the same time, I reached out to a couple of people and said, how are you? Are you okay? Are you safe? And they said, some of them said, no, I'm not okay. And I'm not safe. And nor is my family. And a lot of the reasons that these people aren't safe is because of the work they did with us. Um, that they, you know, by effectively performing their work, they were, effectively you know siding with us even though they weren't taking necessarily any sides but you know the regime changes viewing them as having taken sides and they're and they're not safe so a number of people are in hiding uh with their families and some of them were telling me that the taliban and this is a good you know 10 days ago uh now um so around the 20th of, of august um they were saying the the Taliban are going door to door looking for me, looking for my son, and they are doing targeted executions. This is happening right now. They're doing targeted executions, and they are asking for me. They're going door to door. We're we're in hiding, but they're not just looking for me. They're looking for my family as well. Um, so I said, okay, um, let me see what I can do. Um, but I said, you need to one, stay safe, and you need to two. Um, I'm going to see what I can do, but I'm no longer in in the in the army. Uh, I don't I don't have any any official way that I can help you, but I know some people or I know how to contact people, and so I will try. But you need to try as many ways as you can too, and yeah, um, to uh, stay safe and get you and your family out of the country. Um, so I've been spending a lot of time uh, reaching out to people. Ryan, um, who we mentioned earlier, is one who has has helped a lot. Um, I, I ended up speaking to a, um, a military two-star general who has been helping as well. Um, we've been trying various avenues from my U.S. contacts, my U.K. contacts to get them out. Um, the One of the issues that we've been finding is that Every single group that I've been trying to help, every single family 
that I've been trying to help has a, has a family member who is over the age of 18. And so from a political viewpoint, a, a, a lot of the extractions have been immediate family and immediate family has been children 18 or under. Um, and so that's been an issue. And of course, family is a bit different there. For instance, some of them, are, uh, one, of, one, of, one of my guys says, I've got my brother and my sister and my mother. Every single, those other three are, are all over 18, um, but they are his immediate family. And it's funny, uh, and I get that we have to draw a line somewhere. We have to draw a line. Where is that line? You know, we can't bring, you know, hundreds of family members out. But to him, that is his immediate family. They they are at risk directly because of him. If he goes, they will not be safe. Um, he helps and supports them. Um, so it's it's a real issue. Someone else has 22 family members um, that they need to get out uh, and. And, and it's tough. Where do where do we draw that line? Because if we leave them behind, you know, probably probably someone in that family will be will be executed in in some way. Uh, um, and it, and it, and it's it's tough. And then of course all the evacuation has been centered in 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 Kabul, which is the capital. It's where the main airport is. But uh, certainly from a British perspective and, and also from, uh, uh, well, from a British perspective, the bulk of our operations were in the south, a long, long, long way from there. Uh, um, and there. And even from a U.S. perspective, there, were, there was a huge amount of work happening all over, um, uh, everywhere. In the, uh, and yet, yet everything's focused up there. And I, I find that I, I do get it. We've got limited resources to extract people and we can get a lot of people from there. But how how are we and have we been supporting people elsewhere and it you know there there has been stuff that hasn't really hit the press too much about their you know I'm, I'm not saying it hasn't happened but it hasn't perhaps happened as much as it has so um uh I'm, i managed to get one of the guys onto a list to be evacuated but it was just him and not his family members so he has stayed behind so i actually haven't got any of my family members out that i'm that i'm trying to get out but we're still working on that they're so far, they're all still safe. Um, they're looking at ways to get out, um, and we're still working um, on it. But but they're still there. But of course, this is just the first step in the in the process. Once we get them out, they're then refugees somewhere, wherever it is. They've got to restart their lives. They've got to support their their family. Um, you know, into a country that where certainly they're on their second language um uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that they that they all can all the people that i'm actually working with can the main family member can speak english to an extent but of course some better than than others and you know there's there's a, a lot of work to do there their kids are going to need toys to play with they're going to need a roof over their head they're going to need to um be be fed so there's a, there's a huge 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 amount of work and support um that's going to need to go on once we get these people out as well so another thing that I keep hearing over and over again from especially the Green Beret community, um, and I think a lot of people that are respected in that, that space is the philosophy that we should have been in with special operations for a year or so and then, and then out again. What's your politics aside? What's your philosophy seeing the, the relationships that you were able to build, being there, speaking the language, you know, in, uh, interacting with with the locals, of of that versus this twenty year conflict that we found ourselves in. I mean, 
I have absolutely no doubt that we made a difference, that we did good, um, that 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 was fantastic. I'm very fearful for what's going to happen. And like a, a lot of people are saying, we'll judge them on their actions, um, not necessarily what they say, because we haven't been able to trust the Taliban in the past. So why should why should we now? I'm also following with great interest the the resistance that has formed in the north. And of course, you know, they uh, don't have that many fighters in relative strength size, but they they have um, a they they they're deeply deeply set in their heart that this is what they have to do and they will do whatever it takes and they're in an area that they can defend very well. Um, so it, that's going to be very interesting. Uh, um, I'm also fearful for the. ISIS K um, that they have there and where that's going to go. But I think that uh, I think the speed of the Taliban advance has surprised a lot of people. Um, honestly, I haven't followed it enough over the last six to 12 months. Um, so it's difficult to comment accurately on it. But one thing I will say is that, you know, we definitely, we, the West, NATO have made a massive mistake. This this should never have happened this quickly like like this. And I'm sure that the political leaders and the military leaders, if they could have their time again, would have advised and done things very differently and would not have accepted this. But I, I think one of the things, and there was a um, video that I saw recently on LinkedIn of a colonel, US Marine Corps colonel, who made this video that effectively has ended his career um and he said you know and i absolutely agree with this that you know what's getting people there were lots of people saying hey everyone who went to afghanistan you did a great job thank you thank you um it's going to bring up some things if you have mental health issues or whatever here's what to reach out to um but we all pretty much know that you know in general we did a good job um we all pretty much know that there are places to reach out to. But the bit that was missing, and this is the key bit that he said in, in his video, is there hasn't been from the senior military leadership and the senior political leadership responsibility and ownership for the problem and for saying, we got this wrong. We got this wrong. It's on me. And I know a couple of generals. Uh, I personally know a couple of generals who were really, really amazing at taking responsibility for things that happened on their watch that honestly were not their fault at all, but they would say, this is on me, I'm going to fix it. And you would have massive, massive respect for them for saying this is on me. And actually, some of the times you knew, if you knew the details of what it was, it really wasn't on them. You know, someone somewhere else, and yeah, they, under their command, but there's only so much they can really know of what's going on. Um, but I, I had massive respect for those people when they did that. And I think that from a leadership perspective, that's missing. You know, people are trying to be, you know, from... Uh, a political standpoint they need to stay in their jobs be re-elected all that kind of thing so they always want to put the blame off somewhere but even from a military leadership perspective I, I i think i think there are people that need to stand up and say this is this is on us we absolutely got this wrong um, and i think people need to hear that and i think i think that will make a difference for people to hear them say you know we we got this wrong people need to hear that and actually that's what true leadership is about as well um, it's about, you know, and people don't don't get things right all the times. So, and I think at that high level, there is too much of an onus on, you know, people get fired if they make these these big 
mistakes. And I don't think that ne- that necessarily should happen because people learn massive lessons when they when they do it. I think people just need to accept that they make mistakes. These people learn learn lessons as well. But yeah, you know, we need people at this high echelon level because this is this is such a mistake. This absolutely should never have happened. It hasn't been a waste of. 20 years but there is a lot of work over 20 years that have gone there's a lot of taxpayers dollars that you know and a lot that have that have been wasted as a result this could have been this, this could have been so 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 much better and there are people in places that need to put their hands up and say you know we we got this wrong and if we had our time again we would have done this differently and Going forward, we will have time again and we will do things to make it right. But yeah, sorry, everybody. We, you know, this was on us and, and we got it wrong. Yeah, that, that mirrors a video I saw Jocko Willink put out. I don't know if you saw that one, but uh, he basically made a video of what, in this case, the president should have said. I think President Andor, again, top, top leaders. Um, and it was just that. And obviously he's known for extreme ownership. So he's, you know, he's kind of walking the walk of, of what he would do if he probably was in that position. But it was exactly that, you know, and, and I think you're absolutely right. The moment something happens, there's this immediate kind of, you know, completely unheartfelt apology on TV when there's, you know, any sort of issue with, with a, with a person. And then they may or may not then be completely, you know, relieved of their duty and ostracized and everything. And I think that's one of the issues that I see. And I have this on, on the show. There's people that have come on here that I agree with 89% of what they do, but they're possibly, you know, more extreme religious beliefs or, you know, political beliefs don't align with mine, but you focus on the main area of what they did and they've done a lot of good in the world. But we have this kind of hair trigger mentality at the moment that if you're not perfect, yeah, you know, perfect example, CrossFit, you know, Greg Glasman, the, uh, the founder, makes a tweet that's insensitive and poorly timed and they try and burn the entire CrossFit community down. CrossFit that's all over the country full of people of all backgrounds and races and colors and creeds and sexual orientation and from one tweet, you know, and there's probably a couple more things behind it, but regardless, they, they want to destroy everything that was good about it. So, yeah, I think ownership and, and like you said, forgiveness, understanding that none of us are, are flawless and we're all going to make mistakes and as long as you own it, and, you know, and there may be obviously scenarios where you can't get past that. But most of the time, yeah, you just you own it, you learn from it and you move on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and and we need that. And that's the bit that's that's missing out there in 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 everything that's 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 happening. And yeah, I, I, I and I get why people are scared to do it at that at that level. You know, it's there their careers that they would potentially be throwing away if they if they owned this but you know i think the bigger picture the impact that that will have on people and if they did it right um if they did it in the right way they could they could survive it i think but uh Absolutely. Well, transitioning from that, and thank you for your perspective, because it's just very unique with what you did in 2011 and what you've been trying to do now with the logistics side. You know, it's another very, very important um, lens for us. So parallel to that, you mentioned about fast roping and obviously you were in the military. Um, when did you find yourself getting even into the general area of, of parachuting, skydiving, and then kind of walk me through that to standing on a tower in Kuala Lumpur challenging a world record yeah so 
Um, my parents were skydiving national champions in their day. Uh, so I came from a background of doing it when I was 16. I said to my father, I'd like to jump. Can you help me fix it up? So he fixed it up. Uh, and I went and did a jump and, um, this was a static line jump and I, it normally takes about seven, eight jumps to go from static line onto free fall. And I tumbled and I got it wrong. Uh, I, I, I bent forward instead of arching backwards. I had my head down instead of my head up. I quit um, for about eight, a year and a half. And then my sister got old enough. She went and did it. So I started back up again. Uh, and it took me instead of seven, eight jumps, it took me 34 jumps to get onto free fall. Um, and I found it incredibly hard. Uh, and I was absolutely petrified. I, I remember I still right now, can picture myself um, doing my first jump. I remember I was the second one out. I was I was so so petrified, scared. I was 16 years old. Uh, I didn't know if I was doing the right thing. I didn't know if I would survive. Uh, I even had in my bag just in case a spare set of underpants. Uh, um, I, I had packed them. You know, I, I was I was I was so scared. Um, but I remember screwing my face up, and I'm glad I wasn't the first one out of out of the, out of the plane, because uh, I remember watching the first guy. Saw his face screwed up. You could obviously see the fear in his face. Um, I was um, an enlisted soldier at the time in what what was the TA, so a reservist. Um, but he was he was an officer. I can't remember a captain or a major. So I I sort of looked up to him, and he went first. I was second, and I thought, you know what, if he can do it. I can do it, and so I sort of followed him, uh, and but uh, and, and and I did it, and I don't remember the next few seconds. Um, uh, uh, I was just so scared, just grateful to have got out, done it, and survived. Uh, um, but uh, you know, my whole point, you know, I, I I went on to become a multiple multiple time national champion. Um, I. Uh, I got world medals in base jumping. I, I won a world championship. So, you know, the, my point is about the, you know, it took me 34 jumps and I was really terrible at it to begin with. You know, I then went on to have great success in the sport. Uh, and, and so, you know, just because you find something hard, just because you're not always good at something, uh, doesn't mean that you won't get to where you need to get to in the end. You've just got to keep going and, you know, have the drive to, to, you know, just make it happen, whatever it is, you know, and, and, and I quit and, and, and came back to it too. And, and, and if I hadn't, my life would be very different from what it is. And I spent, uh, you know, so much of my life jumping out of planes or off buildings and mountains and all of that kind of thing. And, and so I had been, I don't know, I'd been a multiple time national champion, uh, got into base jumping, flying from mountains, put wingsuits on, flying them in the mountains, uh, all of this really, really exciting, fun stuff. I, I remember my first wingsuit jump in the mountains in Norway. Um, so I'd, 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 I'd put on a wingsuit, I'd, I'd flown it from a plane, but uh, my first base jump um, in the mountains in Norway in a wingsuit and I and I jumped off this mountain a number of times but not in a wingsuit but I put this wingsuit on and uh, uh, and I stood on the edge and I went off and I was I was still a bit you know I, I mean most jumps you still get a little bit of nerves going in and, uh, and stuff but but you know I went off and I started flying instead of this massive uh, big 
rush of speed going down the 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 wingsuit you're able to convert um do that 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 speed with the with the air coming over the wings just like an aircraft and you can and and you then reduce your vertical speed by about uh, uh by about two-thirds and and you're flying forwards at the speed and so you're used to this you know you know falling down at about 120 miles an hour and now now you're falling downwards at you know i don't know about only 70 80 miles an hour seven years something like that depends how you're flying in the stars but and, and you're flying forwards really fast uh, as well and it's amazing in the time you have your mental clock of the jump was so so different from what you had um that you're that you're you're flying i remember and i remember landing after that jump um and 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 i looked back up and and i just i like that's incredible this is so so amazing i look back up where i'd come from and one of the thoughts and this is going to sound crazy to people that already think that what i've done is insane uh, but one of the thoughts genuinely 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 that went through my mind was uh, i cannot believe that everyone isn't doing this because it was just this so intense incredible amazing experience that i really couldn't believe that why isn't everybody doing this this is so incredible i was flying i could actually fly okay yes in relative terms i was coming down i wasn't really going up and there are little techniques you can use these days to actually go up a bit uh but you know it, like from a technical perspective maybe i wasn't technically flying like you're in a plane or or something like that but you know i genuinely was flying i felt i was flying and why wouldn't everyone in the whole world want to be able to do this it was so so incredible um but as we went on from from all that and and i love jumping with with my teammates my close friends um that uh that a, a few of us had this thought that we had a skill we could do something and what if with this skill we could help others and so we so we formed an organization called jump for heroes and we partnered with the uk's leading veteran non-profit um and we thought instead of raising money for them what if we could do something way more way bigger than that and instead of raising money for them we would empower others to do that and um, we went on a bit of a PR mission to to get the message out there about uh, um, the support that veterans could have and how to do that and then if people were looking for a charity that they were going to raise money for how about this one and lots of veterans also didn't know that although this was the leading veteran charity they didn't really know exactly what it did and, and how it could help them so if they needed support they would then also know where to turn to. And we did a whole range of different stunts and PR opportunities. And one of them is we went to Kuala Lumpur and there was a tower there and uh, we did a 24 hour record to do the most jumps uh, in 24 hours. Um, there, uh, uh, and, you know, all kinds of different things. We, we flew from the north face of the Eiger in formation and passed a line known as the murderous wall uh and and of course don't don't get me wrong this is all amazing and and you know 
we had an amazing time doing it. It was great for us. We we loved doing the stuff. It was our teammates, but we could then use our skill to do something. And I think everybody has a skill. Everyone has a skill, whatever it is, whether you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, um, you've got a skill, you can do something. It's about how you use that skill, what you do with that skill. Uh, and we d- we decided to use ours to help others. And, you know, I I hope that um, a lot of other people can find their skill, use their skill to help others. And I know you have firefighters, police, uh, um, you know, that that listen to your podcast and they do amazing things. And we were focused from a veteran perspective. And now I do uh, um, some some uh, some work with with Ryan, who, who we talked about, who you've had on your show and through the Bird's Eye View Project and Sons of the Flag. You know, he he helps first responders a lot and we do stuff with the bird's eye view project um to 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 try and and support first responders and veterans uh, as well so it's just great that we can take what we've got in some way and we can help others with it as well and uh, and uh, you know i would love to empower more people to take their skill whatever it is and see how they can harness that skill they can use that skill to to support other people Absolutely. Well, that's what I find with the podcast. You know, this the most value for for me to give to someone else is is interviews. You know, that's that's you know what what I have, and I can do fundraisers, and I can you know give away books and all kinds of stuff. But really, to me, getting this to thousands of people is the most valuable you know tool that I have. Now, just going back for a second, you said murderous wall. Um, there's a, uh, um, it's a climbing line, I, I, I believe, part of the north face of the Eiger, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll be I'll be honest with you, it's just um, something that makes it sound even more scary and dangerous of where we were flying and and that that sort of thing. But the the north face of the Eiger is very infamous uh, um, from a climbing area and and how to do it doesn't doesn't get that much sun and uh you know and if you look at the side of it and we actually took a helicopter up to to the area that we were going to jump from and it's a helicopter's flying up the side of it and you're looking out the window and you're seeing the scale and depths of it and it's all a bit dark with other areas in in the light but the sun's not getting on it it's all a bit dark and grim uh, and 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 scary and we're thinking we're going to have to stand on this plateau right on the edge of this and uh, uh and we're timing it and we're, we're trying to make a, a a video that we've got to time our exit with another helicopter flying over us to get the exit footage as we go uh, uh and getting that right and we've got smoke going and if we pop our smoke too early we're engulfed in this cloud of smoke and can't really see where we're going and then we and and, and that happened we just had to trust that the other people on the team would leap at exactly the right time or we're going to crash into them as we one of us mistimes our, our our exit and then we start tumbling unstable down the side of this 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 gigantic mountain there um but you know uh, and perhaps making it sound a bit more scarier than it was but it, it, it was an amazing time really really exciting uh, uh and great to, great to do Beautiful. Yeah, I'm just going to envision the uh, the conversation. All right, we're going to jump. You know, I want you to pull your chute when we get past murderous wall. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what was it called? Yeah, yeah I mean, and and you know, it didn't all go perfect. You know, on the on the the, the first jump, we had we had one of our guys land in the trees, uh, uh, and we had to run up and rescue him, and he got out, and and then we were worried about all our kit being damaged, and we hadn't brought our second rigs up on the mountain that day with us, and you know, all this kind of kind of thing. And, uh, you know, so it, but it, but it, you know, it's good in a way in that you know it just shows that these things don't always go to plan, and that's why you have your backup plans, why you why you have your risk mitigation strategies, uh, uh, 
as well because you know we you know we produced a nice video from it all but uh um you know the behind the scenes and we have a behind the scenes part of the the video as well that sort of shows some of that 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 footage as well but you know it's important that you know all these things you know like particularly with social media these days we get a snapshot of people's lives and normally for most people it's all the good stuff and and it can get some people a bit down going you know wow look at your life is great and mine's a bit tough and i'm suffering from this but of course those people are only putting the good stuff out there the people the stuff that people want to see and lots of lots of these things like these these stunts that we were doing there are bits that don't go to plan it doesn't always work as it as it should absolutely well i want to get to the risk mitigation and, and the importance of you know training and setting the bar high and all that stuff in a second but just going back to something you said because i'm curious you're a child watching your parents excel in skydiving you finally jump out the plane there's got to be a kind of uh, subconscious idea that i was spawned from two skydiving experts i clearly must be talented and good at this as well was there an element of hero worship that discouraged you from carrying on after that first time when you didn't feel like you had the skills that that you were seeing and then you were you know the repetition count you were falling behind did you struggle with that at all not really actually uh my hero worship for my parents doing it was the fact that just that they could do it um i mean that was that was to me before i'd done it that was incredible um to to in in my mind at that stage to have that have the guts just to be able to jump out of a plane and to do it again and again and uh, particularly for my my mother there were very few females there still aren't that many females that that, that do it although that's that there are more and more um coming coming into it but you know particularly then there were very few females that did it but that that they, they could do it um that was just impressive enough um as it is and that i could somehow join them and do that and then um then it got an element to me about jump numbers within it and i i spent a lot of time going after numbers as opposed to good quality jumps and it took me a while to, to get down to uh, realizing that it was more about the importance and the the quality of the jump rather than just burning a hole in the sky for no reason um so i so i became focused on just just doing it because i just i just loved doing it i didn't care what i was doing i just wanted to do it uh um as well but no i don't think there there was something like like that 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 spurned me or held me back because just the fact that somebody could do that was incredible and i have massive respect for anybody who just wants to go and give it a go still these days because i still recall you know how hard it it was for me and also i actually have massive respect for those that don't as well for people say that is that is not for me um, because I massively, massively respect the fact that somebody knows what is and isn't right for them, and that they'll say, nah, you know, nah, this that's not for me. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do it." And I think that's really important in life as well. The people that can stand up, they can say no. That this isn't, this isn't my path. This isn't where, where I want to go. Well, it's an element of the fear of the unknown. I think for especially for my journey. So my girlfriend at the time, Zoe, years ago, I was in New Zealand. We were traveling around the world and. She signed us up for skydiving in, I think it was Tapau. I think I got that right. Um, near Nelson, Nelson, around there. Um, oh, oh, near, near, near Nelson was that Motueka? Um, I'm not sure. I think it was Nelson though, okay. so it was around there. But okay. I, I will be completely transparent. I emotionally and physically shit myself prior to this this jump. I was so so scared. 
And uh, I remember being in McDonald's and, you know, was half eating my burger, half having to go to the toilet. Um, and then we, we, we went through, you know, I did it regardless, um, kind of controlled my emotions. By the time my feet hit the ground, I was ready to sign up to do the whole instructor thing. It was, it was crazy, but what an, it was such a powerful lesson for me, how debilitating and paralyzing the fear of the unknown can be versus the reality of what you're scared of. So for me, you know, for some people that are on the, on the, the fence about jumping, you know, I think that we, we find that we're scared so much of, our perception of what it's going to be like versus what it's actually going to be like. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's very true. But and I think it's a perceived fear because it's actually pretty safe. Um, it really is if you do it all properly, you have all your training, and um, it's it, it's actually a pretty safe thing to do. But if you were to take someone from an African tribe uh, and transport them in some way um, to a western country and put them on the side of a fast road maybe it's a two three four five six lane road of all these cars driving really fast what looks like at each other uh um, and the person has never seen a car you know they're driving really fast at each other overtaking going there and he looks at it as crazy doesn't understand that there were different lanes he travel at different speeds in the different lanes that there were lanes that go one way lanes that go a different way that people have to take tests that there are things like seat belts and airbags for if things do go wrong and what sort of thing they don't understand all these mitigation strategies that that have been put in place but initially just looking at it stood on the side never having seen this you think wow this is crazy these guys are crazy i'm I'm, I'm not going anywhere near a car ever. That, that is just so scary. But we're bought up, um, you know, by, by just knowing that that's a normal thing to do. We're not bought up jumping out of planes. Um, right, uh, um, there. So it, it, it is a perceived risk, a perceived danger, uh, um, as opposed to the actual bit. And if you run the, the, the numbers, it's actually often more dangerous to drive to the drop zone than it is doing the actual jump itself. Yeah, as a firefighter, it doesn't surprise me at all because we run on those regs all the time. Um, so with that, I think a, a great analogy for me of um, you know perception versus reality is the film Free Solo, Alex, Alex Honnold. Um, when people are watching him free climb, and I haven't met anyone yet who hasn't watched that film on the edge of their seat, it's incredible, but you get this impression of, oh, he's reckless, he's an adrenaline junkie. But then when you watch the actual film, you see the absolute diligent preparation between his strength and conditioning, his mental practice, his nutrition, his planning of you know the route over and over and over and over again. And you realize that, yes, there's an element of, of danger, of course, but you know, that's far outweighed by the preparation. So talk to me about you know, that kind of philosophy in your world. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, when when I was in the army and I was doing the test and evaluation aerial work, I, I had to go on a uh, on a, a course run by, uh, and so uh, it was an Air Force course, and an Air Force officer stood up and he gave an introduction and he showed a video, and it was a video of um, a guy wingsuiting down the side of, of a mountain. And he'd obviously, you know, been running this video for a year or two and you know every every couple of weeks he runs this course and makes these 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 presentations he said look this is an example of of someone reckless this is why we need to mitigate risk this is why we have to plan this is why we do all of all of these all this this huge binder of paperwork that 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 we now have to do 
um, to to do all this. And I stuck my hand up and I said, uh, I understand what you're saying, um, but your video is absolutely uh, a terrible example of this. And I'll tell you why. I personally know that guy in that video. And I know that, that he mitigates risk really well. And, and let me point out a few areas of what you think is, is is reckless, and I'll show you where he's mitigated that risk, what he's doing just by looking at that. I can tell you in how he's flying, what he's doing, where he is, uh, and how he has mitigated that risk and, and how he has done that. And the guy was a bit taken aback and didn't really know how to respond to that. And probably, uh, I, you know, he nodded and agreed and sort of thought it was interesting, but I bet he didn't go and find a different video in the future and used it again, because uh, you're not going to get too many of me going on on that course. Uh, um, but, you know, he got it completely wrong, but it just goes to show, you know, how many people can look at something, not understand it and make judgments based on that. And, uh, and I definitely found that with a lot of jump for heroes aspects that we were doing, we were trying, you know, approach a building owner, owner or something to try and do a stunt that we would mitigate the risk for and they would shut us down uh, um, immediately without even listening to us, without even understanding our risk mitigation strategies. And, and actually, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily risk averse, but I'm definitely a risk mitigator and you know there were huge numbers of times within base jumping where we would get to an exit point the conditions wouldn't be right and we would have to we would have to head back down uh, um, uh, and not do the jump because that jump will still be there the next day the next week the next year the mountains aren't really going anywhere uh, um, but but if the conditions weren't right and there were winds that were going to blow us into the cliff face or you know whatever it, it, it might be uh, um, then you know uh, um, then the then a year in in a hospital bed is not something that we really wanted to 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 get so we would uh, and, and of course particularly if it was for a, a stunt that we were trying to do the negative pr um would, would wouldn't be good for us either but of course we didn't want to get hurt too um so so you know we would mitigate these risks pretty well and, and of course you know if we got hurt on 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 one stunt you know the next person that we that we reach out to isn't going to let us go 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 there either because you know we're obviously not very good at what we do and you know it's not going to be good for them if we're getting 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 hurt so you know we would we would mitigate our risks really really well uh, and you know uh, we would and and me as I was sort of running the team so me as someone who's running the team uh, I was responsible for the other people now I didn't want to, to take them onto a stunt where we hadn't mitigated that risk I didn't I didn't want to get my teammates hurt some of my best friends I didn't I didn't want any any of that to happen so I would make sure as best we could did we did we always get it right no but um, uh, you know we would we would do our, our absolute best to make sure that we did it in a in a safe way that was a way that we could repeat time and time again if we needed to. And if it wasn't something that we could do again and again, then it wasn't safe enough. A lot of people say, well, you know, as long as, you know, as long as you can do this safely nine, nine out of 10 times, then, then, um, you know, that's, that's okay. One, nine out of 10 times was not something that would work for us. That means we do 10 jumps one time. It's going to go wrong. No, no, thank you. That's not good enough. Not even 99 out of, out of a hundred that, that, that wasn't, you know, that, that level of risk wasn't acceptable to us. And so, you know, it was very important that we mitigated that risk, but we definitely found um, that there were a lot of people that just wouldn't even listen to our risk mitigation at all. They, they judged us on the outset on, you know, on a YouTube clip that they've seen somewhere uh, or something and, and not on, on what it was that we actually wanted to do. 
Well, it's such an interesting parallel with our profession because um, we we need the bar to be set high. We need those repetitions. We need to train under stress. But sometimes the risk mitiga- mitigation experts, the HR people or, you know, risk management um, are the ones that we have to fight. So it ends up creating a worse training environment. So through your lens, how important is it for repetition, for, you know, uh, checking your equipment, for creating stressful kind of what-if scenarios so that you have a plan B, C, for example? Uh, it, it, it's really important. And I'd often stand on, on an exit point and I, and, and I would consider, okay, what happens if when my parachute opens, um, I have it opens 90 degrees left, opens 90 degrees right. What happens if this and I would run through the scenarios in in my head prior to jump uh, and and make sure I knew it. And I would I would uh, what we would call dirt dive. So that's a visualization of of what would happen. So I visualize I almost shut my eyes, I, you know, and, and I whip myself around like it's open 90 degrees to the left. And I in my mind work out what I'm what I'm going to do and 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 how it's going to work. But I've definitely found that there was a complacency issue. And a lot of people talk about risk m- risk mitigation and keeping things simple. If you keep it simple, you, you're, you're going to miss less things. Um, but I also found that um, that didn't always work. Uh, and I remember one jump I, I, I did that I kept saying simple, but I became complacent with it because it was too simple. I was just doing the same thing over and again. There wasn't much to it. And I, I ended up doing a jump in Switzerland where I'm flying my wingsuit uh, and I look down. I'm halfway through the jump. I'm in free fall. I'm flying. And there's this, well, there's this thing just going bang, 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 flapping on me. And I'm like, what's that? And I sort of look down. I can see my chest strap on my chest strap, which, which holds my harness together, isn't done up. And I'm looking down, I'm going, oh, man, what do I do? And 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 I'm flying along, and I'm ch- trying to work out what to do, and I can't, you know, I'm in a wingsuit. My arms are semi-restricted. They're sort of swept back. I can't really reach them up. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and of course, when I, when I open, I've got shoulder straps on, but my arms are swept back, and I don't want, I'm going to be flying forward as my parachute opens behind me. And the and last thing I want is for those shoulder straps to sort of slip off my shoulder, which my chest strap would restrict that from happening, and we sort of keep flying out of my parachute as it, as it opens. Uh, and, and I'm flying along anyway. Uh, it got to the point where, you know, this is a base jump. I don't have that many seconds left before I actually have to open my parachute because the ground's coming up at me pretty quickly. Um, so I'm flying along. And I, I, anyway, I, I reach in, I grab my parachute, throw it out, and then while I can't put my arms up too much, I can bring them bring them in uh, and across my, my chest and bring bring that in and then grab my harness and, and hold that in. And, and you know, uh, by the fact that I'm here talking to you, obviously everything went, went fine. Um, but uh, that happened to me. And, you know, I had many thousands of jumps. I was very experienced. Uh, um, uh, and, uh, but that still happened to me. And this is, this would be like a real, real novice baby mistake that, 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 that people make, uh, if, if they do at all, it's like a, such a novice basis, but it happened to me because I became complacent and I became complacent because of simplicity, because my pre-jump routine, uh, with that stuff was, was, was really simple. I'd made that jump so many times. Um, uh, and, and I missed a simple check because I became a ton of bit c- complacent. Um, and so I then started to introduce just a little bit more complexity into my routine. And by it being a little bit more complex, I had to think about it a bit more, but being, being a little bit more 
complex and think about it a bit more. I made sure I didn't miss things out. So I'm totally with the argument of keeping things simple uh, and you can mitigate risk by that that simplicity but there's a balance somewhere and it all comes down to individuals as well and some people you know might find if they've been doing that over and over again that perhaps you need to introduce a little bit more have a tiny bit more complexity so that they uh, uh, you know their brain keeps thinking it, it stays fired up as they as 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 they do it so i think it's really an important point for people to to consider particularly as they get more experienced in what they do that sometimes that simple becomes mundane it can become complacent uh, and you know you know a strategy to help deal with that particularly when it's you know uh, something that is you know uh, can have serious impact if you if you if you get it wrong is to perhaps consider the introduction of just just a small bit more complexity yeah, well, again, very, very pertinent. I've uh, I've gone to check out my pack before the air pack, and the the valve wasn't connected to the bottle. Numerous, numerous times I've gone, and it's been you know five, six hundred psi lower than it should have been. Um, so I kept my routine pretty much the same. Actually, it got better uh, a few years into my my service as a firefighter. But yeah, keeping it the same because famili- excuse me, familiarity breeds contempt, no doubt. And people that were very diligent on their probation year. And now not even checking their packs, and you know, sadly, it's it's when you need it that you know all that stuff counts. So I think that's there's a there's a very strong story for us in the fire service to, like you said, throw some different things in to keep it fresh, but also keep that bar as high as possible because you don't want to be you know free falling down a metaphorically free falling down a a mountain with your chest strap untied. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, speaking of um, base jumping and, and wingsuits, tell me how you met Ryan, and then you and I are involved in something very exciting that he's doing down the road. So, kind of whatever you can, kind of whatever so- seeds you can sow of that, feel free to talk about that too. So, Ryan and I met in Switzerland. He was there doing a project with some base jumping, and I happened to be there base jumping as well. Um, and um, someone introduced us because we had uh, uh, you know stuff he's he's a former navy seal i was former uh british military um both base jumping introduced us and um and then we talked about jump for heroes and the work that i would be doing there he's like no way you're kidding me it's like i didn't know about you guys i didn't know you existed this is what i'm trying to set up do something exactly the same in the in the us but i didn't know you guys have already been doing it tell me what you've done i want to you know learn from you know the the successes and mistakes that you guys have done because i'm trying to create the same thing and you know it it turns out that we uh, ha- you know that he i mean he's he's an amazing person that's done so many amazing things uh, and uh, you know we just got on really really well because we both are ex ex military and we both had a passion for using our skills in extreme sports uh, and and to use them to to do something to to help so for him he's helping veterans and first responders and he also has his sons of the flag charity for burn victims um, and he just he just uh, you know dedicates so much of his time to to basically helping others and does it in such an amazing way. He's just a great, great individual. And if anyone hasn't listened to your podcast with him, they need to go back and find that. Um, so, so you know, I now do work is the wrong word, but I, I, I do spend some time you know, assisting him with, with what he's doing. And he has this amazing project coming up that I think isn't for another 
I think it's over a year away, a little under 18 months that's going to span the globe and uh, be amazingly impressive. Uh, and there's a lot of planning and prep to 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 get into it. And I probably can't can't speak too much about it, uh, but it's uh, it it it's going to be insane. I think it's going to get global PR and recognition um, across the world as it does span span the globe in in what he's doing and he's an incredible individual um so it's really really exciting and uh, and an honor to be be part of the team that will be assisting with this absolutely and for everyone listening i don't know if we said ryan's last name ryan parrot is the, the the one you're looking up so i want to kind of transition to some closing questions so before i do i'd love to talk about your book perfect madness so to talk to me about you know what made you write it and then some of the principles that you could bring to the listeners to get them intrigued to go ahead and purchase it um well um so perfect madness the, the subtitle is escaping the confines of conformity making the impossible possible and redefining the road to success in your life and it's it's only a short book i think it's like you know 80 80 pages or um something something like that but it is it's just got so got lots of little life tips and lessons in it it's on amazon it's on you can you can download the 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 ebook i think the ebook is only a couple of bucks or something uh, um it's 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 short it's not expensive and just got lots of small small lessons in it um and you know i'd always wanted to write write a book and um you know i, I i'm part way through a couple of other books um as well but life keeps getting in the way then they're, they're, they're not my my main thing that uh that i'm that i'm doing but i'm a family man with three young kids and anyone that's got young kids will probably understand that what time you used to have and what time you have now are quite different to do to do all, all of these things but you know I'd, I'd always wanted to write a book i felt i had some some uh, uh, some great great things to share and so i put a number of them in the in in there as well beautiful where can people find that uh, it's on Amazon. I believe it's in most sort of online. Um, but, uh, uh, I think it might be on Barnes and Noble, but it's, de- but it's definitely on on Amazon. There's a, there's a you can get the paperback copy, you can get the ebook on on Amazon for sure. Just search "Perfect Madness" and my name, um, or or even even with the subtitle, and it's got a it's got a picture on the front of a sort of a bird cage with a light bulb in and people pulling pulling the bars apart on the um on the on on the cage brilliant all right well then the first uh, closing question that i love is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated a book written by someone else that i love to recommend yes there is a book by someone else it's called a baptism of fire and it's by frank collins um, and Frank and I knew each other. He he is a British Special Forces um, soldier who found God. And I'm not really a religious person, but he he found God. Left the left the SAS, uh, became a priest. And I actually met him when he was the padre of my first unit that I worked at. Um, and uh, and I remember meeting him um uh, and he said uh, he said oh you're new here i was like yeah you know uh, how are you fitting in what do you do and i i said actually i'm actually i'm a skydiver i was like well you know i was i was i just you know i don't know i had a i had a few hundred jumps i thought it was amazing you know uh um he's like all right cool he said you know uh, how many jumps have you got what do you do um 
you know, and I told him, you know, basically about how impressive I, I, I was by doing all this. And it, and, it, and it wasn't until later that I found out that his background and that he also was a skydiver had five times as many jumps as me. Um, what kind of thing. Anyway, we, we actually became good friends. We learned to sky surf both at the same time. Uh, um, so putting like a surfboard on our feet, jumping out of plane and stuff. Uh, um, and unfortunately, his demons got the better of him and he later committed suicide. Um, but it, but it's a really interesting story of, you know, some of the things that he did and how, how his, his life changed as well. Oh, that's a tragic end. Yeah, I've heard of the book before as well. So I'm gonna have to put that on my list. Thank you. All right. Well, the same question, uh, a film and or a documentary that you love. Oh, good, good, good question. Um, I don't really have uh, uh, a super inspiring uh, film to to say, say to people, but you know there are things like um, Top Gun is um, is an amazing film um, with with all that's there, and of course uh, the new Top Gun is um, I think that's not out yet, but it's coming out soon, so that will will be interesting. But um, I I don't have a, a film or documentary that's a big inspiration one. It's more sit back, relax, and enjoy you know some of, some of that sort of stuff. Beautiful. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Well, I think there are too, too many. Um, uh, unfortunately, the, the very, very best one uh, you've had, which is Ryan Parrott, um, you've had. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a really, really interesting guy who is my teammate from Jump for Heroes called Dean Smith. And Dean Smith, um, he he got up to some pretty um, intensive action in Afghanistan. He served there with Prince Harry as well, um, but he spent a lot of the time going back there into other war-torn countries with with um, media and protecting and and being a fixer for the media as well. And uh, he just had a very interesting life, seeing all kinds of. Um, different aspects around the world uh, and would give a give a great take on that and he, he often doesn't doesn't hold back with what he'll tell you um so he would he would be a great person is that the is dean known as smudge have i got that right yes okay yes yeah, yeah, yeah i've had right. him yeah. i think ryan told me about him as well so yeah if you're able to help i'd love to make that and that happen yeah i can definitely put you in touch beautiful all right well then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you what do you do to decompress when you're not flinging yourself off really tall objects oh well honestly it's um spent time with my wife and my kids and my dog uh um we 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 moved to uh this island we've got like uh two and a half acres out here we have um you know i'm sat watching deer walk past my my window right now so it's just this more um chilled kind of time and i i, I definitely find people find this surprising sometimes that but i definitely find that you know a lot of these people that do some sort of extreme stuff somewhere also have these very um the, these these parts of their life and time where they need like to be super chilled as well and it's you know almost it, it it, it brings you back and and grounds you there as well although finding with with three young kids finding time to to be chilled is um few and far between these these days too though yeah absolutely i can relate as well i think a lot of the especially the retired firefighters you know moved to ranches in the middle of nowhere for that very reason yeah all right well then if people listening you know we talked about the book but if they want to reach out to you want to learn more about you learn about jump for heroes um where are the best places online um 
online you can definitely um just find us on on facebook uh um or uh, online just type in jump for heroes it's jump and then the number four and then heroes heroes with a h-e-r-o-e-s um so jump jump for heroes just um google us google my name and uh honestly uh, you'll come up with too many results and uh, and you can come and track us down from uh wherever you find us along the particular avenue that you've that you've um that you've found and are interested in beautiful well alistair i just want to say thank you so much i'm so glad that ryan connected us obviously we're we're fellow brits but you know your journey again is just one of you know so many so many fascinating backstories before we even get to what you're known for now but um you know the parallel i think between what you do as a profession now um you know and the fire service and you know whether it's the physical standards whether it's the training standards are are very important here as well so thank you so much for being so generous with your time today you're you're very welcome in indeed uh, I, i've heard such amazing things about you about this 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 podcast um so you know i i feel honored to 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 be in the lineup of the amazing people that you've already had on as well so thank you for having me